Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like angels, rabbits and yawning. Or apes, grapes and capes. I think the history of cloaks, Sam, would be brilliant. It's all about subterfuge and hiding. Or drapes, in other words, the soft furnishings, vapes, (laughs) very topical nowadays, and agape. It's the history of having your mouth open. It's literally jaw-dropping history. Uh, uh, however, and, we digress, uh, as on. always. I'm coming on, in here. Uh, it's digress also, further. It's also like the history of yawning, isn't it? You've, mm. got, you've done two things there. I think we should yes. definitely do that. Um, and it did bring to mind one of my uh, favourite... What were you saying? My, <laughs> one of my favourite paintings by Joseph Ducroix, the self-portrait yawning. And if um, mm. any of you have got a... Computer, anywhere near you, please look this up. Joseph Ducroix, The Self-Portrait of Yawning. It was made in 1783, and it is truly, truly tremendous. Um, I would secretly like to buy this and have it in my bedroom, I think. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's important because it's, um, it's a very sort of unorthodox image of a, you know, a very unorthodox portrait of someone in the mid-18th century. It's, um, it's a self-portrait, obviously, and it's funny, it's expressive... Um, it shows him stretching and yawning, and he's doing it all in a turban and a bright red jacket. So, um, any any vision you might have of a eighteenth mid eighteenth century portrait being very dull and very serious, just go and look at the wonderful Joseph Ducroix, and um, that's inspired me totally to do the history of yawning, James. I love it. Oh, we should do the, the cultural history of the yawn. Yeah, yeah. Easy. I think it's brilliant. However, we digress magnificently uh, because we will be following all these links in our minds, as always, as we come across them, explaining how these histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew? Well, you would know had you listened to our last two episodes that the history of sharks is in fact all about power and status in ancient China. It's about Pompeii, education, irrational fear, including my own, and the Spanish Americas in the 16th century, and so much, much more. Um, Did you see on Netflix that brilliant documentary called My Octopus Teacher? I only think about this because there was a shark in it that ended up eating this poor octopus. If you haven't seen it, it is the most extraordinary documentary I have ever seen. Is it the one about a guy making friends with an octopus? 
It's a guy falling in love with an octopus, okay, basically. Yeah. I've heard about it. But this. it's it's wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Hour and a half, the you it's it's not lost time. No. Or that the history of <laughs> pots is about ancient Rome, household economy, nocturnal micturation, creativity, industry, and of course, Eeyore's birthday. Mm. Terribly sad. When is Eeyore's birthday? Is it September? <laughs> Uh, it is actually the 3rd of December, should people uh, be so kind hmm. to remember it on Twitter. Well, uh, if you if you aren't yawning away listening to us, um, we, let's crack on. The man not sitting opposite me with the other end of town. We're still not in our recording studio, brackets my shed, because um, we're still a bit worried about being in cramped spaces. Let me say that he, well, he's the... The Ronnie Biggs of the present. He's organising raids on the past and then stealing himself away to enjoy its proceeds in a life of leisure and repose in research in his study. It's the wonderful uh, Professor Extraordinary of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, Ronnie. James. Hello, Hello <laughs> Sam. Uh, and the man not sitting opposite me because he's in his... You're not in your shed, are you? You're in some little lair in your house. Yeah. I'm coming to you from the research cave at the moment. Uh, we haven't dared to get together, but the man not sitting opposite me is the exact opposite of what we're going to talk about today. So steadfast, hmm. brave and courageous is he in his commitment to the cause of archival endeavour. He doesn't flee the scene of historical inquiry and scholarship. He doesn't shirk from the millstone of historical grind. Do you get the picture? <laughs> yes, it's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. <laughs> I don't did you like that? I did, yes. It's made me feel um, very loyal and um, true. I'm not sure that's yes. entirely entirely accurate, but there we go. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we are, if you haven't worked it out yet, by either the title on your podcast app or what we've been rabbiting on about, we are going to do the history of running away, uh, which was uh, one of my ideas, I think, James. I think it was, but as soon as you said it, I just got this Monty Python <laughs> sketch in my head from the life of Brian, uh, where they, where they, the, the knights of knee run away. Yes, um, and 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 it's coloured absolutely everything that I've um, thought about over the last yeah. week about. This. I mean, it it is it's a fantastic subject. I was thinking about it particularly in relation to I was thinking about um, English monarchs. And that's what got me thinking about it. But again, it's a wonderful histories of the unexpected subject, because at the beginning you think, what? And then you realise there are so many ways you can think about running away, aren't there? Um, it's, it's, it's almost endless. What popped into your mind first, James? Well, I mean, I was reading, a, I've just been reading a brilliant book, which is to bring some contemporary literature into this. Um, but Janine Cummings' American Dirt is the most extraordinary book, which is about... Um, which is about a mother uh, and her son who are refugees. Uh, they're migrants from uh, Mexico trying to escape into uh, the United States across the border. Uh, there's a, a coyote who sort of takes them, takes them across the border, but they are fleeing because her husband was an investigative journalist who investigated a cartel. The cartel then execute... 16 members of her family at a family party. She and her son are hiding in the shower at her mother's house and then they are forced to flee. And so it's about this incredible uh, journey that she makes and the people that they meet along the way who are 
you know, who are basically running away from certain death. And so what it what I started off thinking about was when we think about running away, the question is, why would you be running away? What are you running away from? Where are you running away to? So it's threat, it's harm, it's about safety. And this resonates you know, really well at the moment with the refugee crisis that we're seeing all over the place, you know, and those, the pictures of people in those small boats, you know, fleeing for their lives across the, the Mediterranean Sea. So it's and this has a very, very long history. You know, it could be traced back to the book of Exodus, you know, and um, um, and the 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 Israelites deliverance from slavery. Um, you know, and 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 earlier still. So it's movements of people, it's diaspora around the world, it's migration. And think about the the Holocaust, the Irish potato famine. Where are people leaving from? What's forcing them to to run away, to move in that sense? And where are they moving to? And running away can also be running away from home, playing truant from school. So it, homelessness, husbands who leave their wives and families who simply abandon them. And there's an extraordinary history around that. It can be running away from prison to so escape from prison or or it can be connected to World War Two or any any war um, and, and running away, uh, escaping from prisoner of war camps. Um, so it's history of retreat at a time of war as well. So running away, fleeing from the enemy. So it's it connects us to cowardice and running away from the army as well. So there's just a handful of things that it can all be connected to. Yeah, for I mean, me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of all of those ones that you've said, I think the kids running away from home is fascinating, and the way that you can trace that in the historical record. But also, this comes back to a favourite topic of ours, isn't it? It's the, the difficulty of actually finding those voices in the past so um if your child has run away you're not necessarily going to be writing about it as you're doing so um but maybe there are reminiscences later in life maybe there are official accounts of police coming across you um i think the church also gets involved uh, with this sort of thing as well so it's 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 a real challenge to you might and you know it happens as a historian but it's a challenge being able to to recreate that and and that challenge will you know vary from period to period uh, but that's something I, I think would would be absolutely fascinating to do. Um, so I, I started thinking about this in terms of I said royal royal royalty for some reason. I mean I was I can't remember why, but we would I was doing something on the Glorious Revolution, uh, sixteen eighty eight, and so there's a tremendously brilliant story. It's probably the most influential example of running away in the entirety of British history, which is James II running away, um, allowing William Orange to become king. And I'm going to certainly talk about that. A little later. Uh, I also came across um, a really interesting query on the Society for Nautical Research's forum, which is something that I run um, in my day-to-day life. Uh, here's a, a query from Philip Young. I have an ancestor who served in the Royal Navy for seven years till he ran and disappeared in Mauritius in 1882. I'm trying to find out what the Royal Navy and also the families of seamen who deserted would have done in this circumstances. So I've got a little bit to say about uh, about the Royal Navy. Um, and I also thought about Huguenots in particular, mm. because I thought, well, what do we do for migration? So there's a variety of topics which I'm going to cover. Um, Excellent. Why don't you go first, James? Go on. Oh, oh, you're too kind. OK, so I'm going to start with something slightly different. Um, you've probably never, um, never been involved in this kind of thing, and I certainly haven't done it either. But it relates to the history of childhood. And it is a game that I'm going to talk to you about called Knock Knock Ginger. 
uh, and it has all sorts of different names uh, in different parts of of uh, the United Kingdom, the British Isles, um, and also different different names around the world. Um, it's known as Knockador Runaway, Ding Dong Ditch, Chickenelli uh, in Scotland, Knock and Run, Knick Knack, Cherry Knocking, uh, Nicky Nick Nine Doors, um, Ring and Run, Knock and Nash, Nick Knocking, Tok Toki in South Africa, uh, and various other things. And the idea is, and you've, I don't know whether you've ever played this, but the idea is that it is a game where children will knock on somebody's front door and then run away, and then somebody opens their door to find that there is nobody standing there. And this is a tradition that goes all the way back to the 19th century. Uh, and did you know that, in fact, it is illegal to do this? Because in the Town Police Clauses Act of 1847, it is, and I quote, a criminal offence to willfully and wantonly disturb any inhabitant by pulling or ringing any doorbell or knocking at any door. And it is punishable with up to 14 days imprisonment. Um, and there's a brilliant book that I was I was doing a little bit of research about this. And there's a brilliant book by Iona Archibald Opie and Peter Opie, these two uh, experts of children's history, uh, experts of ch childhood folktales and, and lore, uh, nursery rhymes and all that sort of stuff. And they've produced a, a brilliant book in the late 60s called The Law and Language of School Children. And in this, they describe this practice of door knocking and bell ringing, known as knock down ginger or knocking down ginger. And they describe exactly what goes on here. Uh, and there is an account from a 10-year-old girl who writes of it as her favourite game. The game, is, she quotes, is called Knockout Ginger. It can be played by any number of children and is great fun. First of all, you choose a person among the team who is the knocker. Next, you find a house. The best kind are large ones on which you can play the trick. It is much safer for the knocker if there is an overhanging porch or it is not so likely that he or she will be recognised. The ideal night is very quiet with a minimum amount of wind. The team first creep around the house to make sure that all the inhabitants are safely indoors. When they have arrived back, the knocker takes over. He or she steps up to the door, one nearest to escape is best, and gives a loud and frightening knock, and then runs out. The team and the knocker run to a safe hiding place, when the noise has reached its destination and done its work, the person comes out muttering in most places, All right, leave the door on its hinges. The owner sees nobody. Did you like that? I, I thought I'd add a little bit of intonation in there. The owner sees nobody and is very angry. Then the game is over and the victim now has very angrily slammed the door. The team chooses another knocker and the game is played again. It is necessary that the game should be played in the dark, otherwise the game and its players might be discovered and banned. And there are all kinds of mechanical uh, inventions that come into this, like um, like automatically um, tying uh, a piece of or tying a piece of cotton to the door so that you're able to stand uh, quite a long way away, tug the cotton, 
and the door knocker knocks. And then if somebody doesn't answer the door, you can then just knock it again from a safe distance. Uh, there's a 13-year-old boy uh, who, say, who, who describes this. When it is dark, us kids get a few reels of black cotton, then take it in turns to go up to people's door knockers and tie it on a long piece of this cotton. It must be long enough to stretch out of the people's gardens onto the road where we hide. Then someone pulls the cotton about half a dozen times, which will knock the door. Then we run for it, leaving the cotton there tied to the door. And if no one don't come out, we knob again. So there we are. Knock, knock, ginger. It's about playing pranks and running away. And you would not believe the variety of pranks that these <laughs> these kids get up to. It's a, um, it's a cracker, isn't it? And I wonder why they... I mean, two weeks in jail? I know. I know. I, know. I can't believe I that. I don't think they'd that be popping little enforced. kids. I don't think they'd be popping little kids in jail. I'm sure this is... This is um, the intention there is to is to catch burglars, <laughs> yeah. I imagine, who knock on your door uh, uh, to see if you're in, and then if you're not in, uh, will promptly uh, come around. These kind of pranks go on nowadays. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and they're used they're... around Halloween and on all sorts of things. But I wonder why people suddenly jumped on that. What's the what's the real fear of going to your door? And having no one there because it's there's no threat. It's not a thing. It doesn't. It doesn't really matter. But maybe there was such a rash of them, it became a problem, or there was, or it was kind of playing on some massive insecurities at the time. I don't know. I think there's more. Well, to I also imagine. I also imagine gangs of teenagers who you know want to do this um, and yeah. get up to all sorts of trouble uh need to be need to be curbed i read one i read one article um about the african american community uh in pre-war in the uh in new york uh where it was quite it actually was quite quite disturbing and violent uh the kinds of things that they got up to yeah yeah um, um, uh, yeah that's that's always true when you look at things like that it does and we're having a laugh about it and it does sound quite humorous and people running away but but there there is a there is often a real a real threat posed to society by gangs of youths and that's what's yes, going on it, here and it and it happens in exeter i know somebody who will remain nameless but <laughs> had to move from his or her house uh because it was right by an alleyway and this person had a particular um she was particularly disliked by the uh teens in her neighborhood and on a daily basis they would go past her house <laughs> knocking on the door oh, no. um and made her life an absolute yeah misery. yeah it can be so there we are so something as innocuous as running away could actually be something very very threatening indeed scary yes yeah, yeah. terrifying well i wanted to talk about uh, the glorious revolution because it gives me the chance to read out one of my favourite letters in English history. Uh, and what we've got here, um, just a very broad stroke um, background. James II is king, OK? He's a Catholic. And he becomes an increasing threat to the Protestant succession to the Anglican establishment. And what happens is that a group of leading peers sit down and they write a letter to William of Orange in June 1688. What they do is they pledge their support to the prince if he brings a force over into England against James. 
uh, William at this time had already been making military preparations for an invasion of England. So this isn't a kind of a cold call. This isn't a knock and not run away. Um, William's already planning. But what it is, is it, it almost serves as a propaganda purpose to uh, allow William of Orange to say, OK, this is what I'm doing. Yes, I'm invading England, but it's more more of a mercy mission as much as anything else. Um, and his idea about why he's invading, that that... I think you need to see it in terms of what he was up to at the time. In particular, he's at war with Louis XIV of France. And what he wants is to, is another ally. And, and having um, England on his side would very much help. So this is a, a letter which is written by some leading, um, leading people in England. They are Charles Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury, William Cavendish, the Earl of Devonshire, Thomas Osborne, the Earl of Danby, Richard Lumley, Lord Lumley, Henry Compton, the Bishop of London... And a couple of other men who are really interesting. Edward Russell, who has been in the service of the Prince of Orange since 1683, so already for five years. He's become the Earl of Orford, been given that title by the Prince of Orange in 1695. And another interesting guy as well, Henry Sidney, who had been groom of the bedchamber to James and master of the horse to Anne, the Duchess of York. And then he served as an English envoy to The Hague from 1679 to 1681 and General of the British Regiment in the Dutch service from 1681 to 1685. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. So this is this letter, and what it does is it sets up William to invade, which is when the big story of running away comes in. One of the fascinating things about this letter is that it is not signed by these people with their actual names. James, this is making me wondering whether you knew about this, actually, because we were interested in codes, because they sign them by numbers. So, Chuck, did you know that? Do you know It'll be this? a cipher, yes. Yeah, um, Charles Talbot, he's 25. William Cavendish, he's 24. Thomas Osborne, 27. Richard Lumley, 29. Henry Compton, 31. Edward Russell, 35. Henry Sidney, 33. Uh, it's really interesting. They've actually chosen their numbers. Does that mean there are 33 other conspirators? Or have they chosen them for a different reason? I don't know. They've chosen them at random, I imagine. Yeah. 
but they're all randomly in between 25 and 33. No 26, no 28, no 30, no 34, uh, nothing above 35. There we are. Not in this letter, but they may be players elsewhere. Ah, so it starts off with a big nod to this. We have great satisfaction to find by 35, this is Russell, and since by Monsieur Zoylestein, and he is... um, the Prince of Orange's first cousin, that your highness is so ready and willing to give us such assistance as they have related to us. We've great reason to believe we shall be every day in a worse condition than we are and less able to defend ourselves. And therefore we do earnestly wish we might be so happy as to find a remedy before it be too late for us to contribute to our own deliverance. The best advice we can give is to inform your highness truly both of the state of things here at this time and of the difficulties which appear to us. As to the first, the people are so generally dissatisfied with the present conduct of the government in relation to their religion, liberties and properties, all which have been greatly invaded, and they are in such expectation of their prospects being daily worse that your highness may be assured there are 19 parts of 20 of the people throughout the kingdom who are desirous of a change and who we believe would willingly contribute to it if they had such a protection to countenance their rising as would secure them from being destroyed before they could get to be in a posture to defend themselves. It's it's actually really fascinating, this. Part of them being, uh, being quite a strong... They're making a strong case for William to invade, but also explaining how weak they are and how much they need his help. It's a very well thought out, carefully judged letter. It's no less certain that much of the greatest part of the nobility and gentry are as much dissatisfied, although it's not safe to speak to many of them beforehand, and there is no doubt but that some of the most considerable of them would venture themselves with your highness at your first landing whose interests would be able to draw great numbers to them whenever they could protect them and the raising and drawing of men together. And if such a strength could be landed as were able to defend itself and them till they could be got together into some order, we make no question, but that strength would quickly be increased to a number double to the army here. So you can see what a, what a, a gamble this was. And they're saying, everyone is here. Many of them we can't identify, but we know they're going to be loyal to the cause. But the only way we're going to find them is if you actually land. This is something that happened in the um, Spanish Armada as well. If you land, then people will come out of the woodwork and will support you. That's what they're saying to William Orange. Many of the officers being so discontented that they continue in their service only for subsistence besides that some of their minds are known already. And very many of the common soldiers do daily show such an aversion to the popish religion that there is the greatest probability imaginable of great numbers of deserters and amongst... Deserters, sorry. And amongst the seamen, it is almost certain there is not one in ten who would do them any service in such a war. So they're saying, on the one hand, the soldiers, the officers and the common soldiers, they're going to be loyal as well as the sailors. Obviously the most important bit, because William's coming across in a massive fleet. Uh, And then carries on with particular reference to um, the birth of James's son, which is one of the key reasons that they, they write to get William to intervene militarily. Um, because after years of trying, James's second wife, Catholic second wife, finally falls pregnant and the birth of a healthy male heir ruins the hopes that the crown would soon pass to James's Protestant daughter, Mary. So the letter carries on uh, until it is signed with these wonderful 
um, numbers at the bottom, 25, 24, 27, 29, 31, 35 and 33. So seven very, very powerful people. So William takes this, he perhaps uses it as propaganda, perhaps it tips him over to the edge to actually decide to invade. And he brings an enormous flotilla. It's four times the size of the Spanish Armada, something like 43 men of war with 10 fire ships um, and 400 smaller boats, over 20,000 soldiers. So this puts James in a bit of a fuss. What does he do about this? They land at Brixham in Devon and then things go massively wrong for James, primarily because of supporters of his changing side. There are lots of deserters. So there's another aspect to the history of running away here. James is plagued by people running away from his cause. It first happens when William stays in the West Country, giving his own troops time to recuperate, but also the opportunity, the expectation to see James's supporters go to William's side. And some really, really big players uh, a desert, one of which is Edward Hyde, the Lord Cornbury. He's son of the Earl of Clarendon. He goes over to him when he's at Exeter. And then one of the most important ones is Lord Churchill, who goes over um, very soon um, afterwards. Also, James suffers because it's the desertion of his daughter, Anne, who goes along to join Churchill's wife, Sarah. So they join the rebels as well. And Prince George the following night. And there's, it leads to a, uh, an outburst from James. God help me, laments James. Even my children have forsaken me. So there are people leaving James's cause like rats leaving a sinking ship. Um, and on the 11th of December, he runs away. He decides he's not going to fight. He can't do so. And he flees from the capital. One of the key things he does is he drops the great seal in the Thames, which effectively stops any further politics because the seal is used to symbolise the sovereign's approval of state documents. Um, it's poor, poor old James. He, he, doesn't, he can't even run away with success. He gets as far as Faversham in Kent, where he's intercepted by soldiers. And then they, they, they get hold of him at a pub and then they detain him and they bring him back to London. And there, again, William is now marching on London and James is is there and he's waiting. But in he's, he decides again to, to try and escape. But this time he is more successful and he manages to cross the Channel and he sets foot on French soil on Christmas Day. So what we've got here is this, the Glorious Revolution is complete and it came about because of people fleeing James's cause, running away, uh, abandoning their loyalty to their king and then also James himself running away and going to France. It has a, a massive influence on the history of England. Um, and it, it's well, but believed by many historians to be the moment where a constitutional monarchy, a, monarch, uh, a constitution which is ruled by the king, changes to something which is much more parliamentary controlled, with William passing things like the Bill of Rights in 1689 and promising to obey the law and to call frequent parliaments. So there you go, James. I believe that to be the most influential, significant example of running away in English history. Excellent. Very good. Very good, Sam. I enjoyed that terribly. Uh, I was fascinated to... 
about um, the West Country and William landing in Brixham and then coming through to Exeter. At this point, he stayed at um, Ford House yeah. uh, in Devon, which was the the family residence of the Courtney family. The Courtney family, uh, the, the Earls of Devon, um, and uh, and own Powderham Castle now. And if you go into the Great Hall in Powderham, you will see in there a beautifully carved wooden chair. And that chair is supposed to be the one that when William visited the Courtney's and had dinner, he sat down on. So it's William of Orange's chair. Mm. So it's there for you. Now, I want to take us in a in a slightly different direction. Uh, and I want to talk about slavery and and running away. Um, so I want to take us in a slightly different direction now, Sam. And we've looked at... We've looked at the fleeing monarchs. I now want to talk about slavery uh, in the United States. And, you know, before slavery was abolished, um, the I want to look at the practice of slaves running away. Um, you know, this is a, a period when you all know your you all know your history um, in the late 18th century, first half of the 19th century. Slaves were regarded as property to be bought and sold. They faced very strict laws and punishments. They weren't allowed to vote, to marry, move about freely or own property. And legally, they could be whipped, starved, mutilated and tortured. And this is something that we write about in our book, uh, in the chapter on scars, um, because, you know, fam famously they were or infamously, they were brutally treated and whipped. And and that uh, those harsh punishments um inflicted on these on the backs of these people are you know testimony of their cruel treatment and barbaric cruelty uh during this period uh we look at that also in the podcast on the history of scars and our main show uh our histories of the unexpected show uh talks about this as one of the examples but what i want to talk about is a particular example of a slave running away and escaping and this is a, a slave called gordon or known as whipped peter um and he is a slave in a louisiana plantation uh, and in March 1863, he escapes from his plantation, which was owned by John and Bridget Lyons. And he was on the run for about 10 days. And imagine this. He's absolutely terrified for his life. He's being chased down by dogs and armed men who are running him down. Literally, these are slave hunters coming after him. He's going through the Louisiana swamps. He rubs his body with onions, sort of with onion juice, in order to throw them off the scent. And eventually, after 10 days on the run, he manages to reach safety, arriving at the Union camp in Baton Rouge, where he attains his his freedom although we know that he was later captured by confederate troops tortured and then had to escape a second time now once he arrives at the camp he's given a medical examination and the records show that this happened on the 3rd of april 1863 which reveals severe scarring on his back and during this examination he is reported to have recounted how he escaped and how he came by his scars. And I'm going to quote from the quote from the records here. Ten days from today, I left the plantation. Overseer Ateu Carrier whipped me. My master was not present. 
I don't remember the whipping. I was two months in bed sore from the whipping and my senses began to come. I was sort of crazy. I tried to shoot everybody. They said so. I did not know. I did not know that I had attempted to shoot everyone. They told me so. I burned up all my clothes, but I don't remember that. I never was this way, crazy, before. I don't know what make me come of that way. In other words, being crazy. My master come after I was whipped, saw me in bed. He discharged the overseer. They told me I attempted to shoot my wife, the first one. I did not shoot anyone. I did not harm anyone. My master's Captain John Lyon, cotton planter, near Washington, Louisiana, whipped two months before Christmas. Now, this testimony was declared as, and I quote, the very words of poor Peter, taken as he sat for his picture. Now, alongside this medical examination, then, there are a couple of professional photographers, itinerant photographers, uh, who were in the camp at this time, a man called William D. McPherson and his business partner, a man called J. Oliver. And they took a picture of his back, stripped to the waist, revealing his terrible scars that were all over his his body. A very sort of no, noble picture of him, um, but, but also showing this horrific scarring. And interestingly, this image was turned into a postcard, a small photograph-sized visiting card sort of size thing, which received very wide circulation. And it was used as anti-slavery propaganda in order to show the complete barbarity of slavery. It was also published in Harper's Weekly in a special 4th of July uh, issue uh, and also in the anti-slavery newspaper The Liberator from June 1863, which described, the editor described receiving the photograph and the profound significance it had. And I quote, There has lately come to us from Baton Rouge the photograph of a former slave, now, thanks to the Union Army, a free man. It represents him in a sitting posture, his stalwart body bared to the waist, his fine head and intelligent face in profile, his left arm bent, resting upon his hip, and his naked back exposed to full view. Upon that back, horrible to contemplate, is a testimony against slavery more eloquent than any words. Scarred, gouged, gathered in great ridges, knotted, furrowed, the poor tortured flesh stands out as a hideous record of the slave driver's lash. The power of the photograph was to bring the slave scar to the attention of the public, to use it as a visceral image in the fight for the abolition of slavery. So there we have it, a very dark and, and, and upsetting and disturbing uh, example, but nonetheless that shows um, the, the, the practice of slaves running away uh, from their plantations. And this is something that we see throughout the 
first-hand autobiographical memoirs of the period. It's something that we see in the, the film uh, 12 Years a Slave, which is based on an on a autobiographical memoir. Uh, very, very common. And maybe in part two, I'll talk a little bit more about this. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to go on to part two because we've already done so much. James and I keep on over-preparing for our podcast. So we're going to come back and do a second part. Hopefully you'll join us for that. But just to say that, you know, the history of runaway slaves, it's fascinating. And it's particularly good to get your teeth into as a historian because the sources are fantastic. There's loads of different types of material you can get into. Um, our newspaper reports, first-hand accounts. Um, lots and lots of material and there's lots of material out there easily accessible on the internet as well you don't necessarily have to get out um, into archives to be able to study this stuff so it's really good thank you all so much for listening i hope you enjoyed it i'm i'm only my foot is out of the door james in my episode on running away i've got much more much more running to be done run away run away <laughs> so um guys uh, thanks for listening and i hope you'll come back and um listen to part two you can follow me on twitter i'm on at dr sam willis and I am on at James Dable, and the pod is on at Unexpected Pod. Do please check out everything we've got on historiesoftheunexpected.com, all of the info on our books and our temporarily postponed live shows. And uh, please, if you could, or you want to help us, you want to support us, do leave a review on iTunes. It doesn't take long, and it makes all the difference to us. Um, and if you have got slightly deeper pockets, then you can find us at patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. And we'd be very, very grateful indeed for any support you can give us to keep our podcast going thank you all so much for listening and we'll be back soon bye guys bye guys and take care planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.